From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Hello and welcome into another episode of the Automotive ADHD Podcast. I am Matt West, hanging out with you, and hopefully you've managed to sleep off uh, some of that self-induced food coma over Thanksgiving, what with all that turkey and stuff, or at least you've kind of scraped yourself off the floor and are kind of uh, contributing to uh, society again. That tryptophan in the turkey, I'm telling you, that's serious stuff. But no, today is going to be a um, sort of a special edition of the podcast. We'll call it a holiday special, which is actually a way of saying I have a cold, which I do. I contracted some sort of respiratory infection over the holiday, and um, this is pretty much all I can do to talk normally right now. So instead of having me sniffle and wheeze and cough all over the microphone, I'm sure you don't want to hear that for 45 minutes, we're going to be playing a best of of the show. I've hand-selected some of the best segments of the show. If, if you missed out in the past couple of months, this is your chance to catch up on all of the good stuff. Uh, and if you really do want to hear me sniffling and coughing on a microphone for 45 minutes, if that's your thing, I don't know, we'll... Uh, We'll make that a uh, Patreon exclusive. How about that? So uh, without further ado, let's get into the show. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about here is, um, and before we get to our guest, uh, is uh, speeding tickets. So check this out, right? Speeding tickets uh, are never fun, but at some point, we all get them whether we like it or not. Even if you think you drive slow, well, there's a good chance you'll get one at some point. Now, uh, there's an interesting list of statistics I found from uh, carinsurance.com. They did a study about some of the best ticket excuses um, and the ones that you don't want to do. And uh, now, to, to clarify here, you really shouldn't be using any excuses to begin with, but these are some of the ones that they found in their uh, course of study that have maybe a better chance of uh, working. So uh, no, the first one, the number one uh, one is uh, kind of boring, but it's, uh, you know, I didn't know I was speeding. Yeah, that has a 26% chance of success. Uh, another one uh, below that, needing to use the bathroom, that is uh, 20% chance of success. Late for a date, that has a 10% chance of success, which, by the way, is the same... Um, rate that they found for using the excuse of being late to a funeral, date, funeral, those are pretty big differences. Um, not a very good bet uh, as far as that goes. Now, that said, half of the people say they got out of tickets without an excuse anyway, just being upfront, being honest, and uh, that's sometimes the uh, best course of action. Now, my advice, I have had, uh, I'll say, several encounters with uh, getting pulled over, for, you know, usually speeding, usually speeding. But uh, my best advice is just be chill, be respectful, most importantly, um, and it, tell the truth so long as it's not incriminating if you do intend to fight the ticket. Uh, don't admit to something that you didn't actually do uh, if you do plan to uh, fight that ticket. But usually the best course of action, and police officers appreciate it, because at the end of the day, they're people, too, and uh, they're out there. You know, they're not always out there looking to give people a hard time. So at the end of the day, being just respectful, chill, uh, polite, understanding, and just being a person, you know, uh, that's probably your best chance of actually uh, getting out of a, a small speeding ticket. Now, if you're speeding a lot, I don't know, you're probably not going to get out of it. There's a uh, good chance you won't. Now, that said, I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't know anything about that. Just saying. Uh, but alpha drivers, yeah, as we were talking about that at the beginning of the show. Man, they are screwed. None of this is going to work for them. If you drive an alpha and you get pulled over a lot, 
I'm sorry. That's just part of owning an alpha. That That is what it is. Now, speaking of things that I wouldn't know anything about, and actually so, let's chat about... um. Love. Yeah, let's let's move on to this because uh, this comes from uh, and, and see, I, I don't speak from great experience here, but how does your car affect how someone uh, is going to perceive you like a potential romantic partner? Well, this comes from an op-ed in the publication Inside Hook. Uh, the author Logan Mahan says she believes men are more attractive when they drive manual transmissions. Now, it's a very thorough, well-done article, but I do have some opinions as someone who drives a manual. Uh, I would actually disagree with her on that, but but more on that later. Now, her article goes on to say that, quote, I think there's something we appreciate about the simple fact um, that a man has gone out of his way to learn an unnecessary skill. Yeah, this is talking about if uh, women find it attractive if men are driving manual transmission cars. An unnecessary skill Excuse me, what's so unnecessary about it? Now, that said, uh, she goes on comparing the manual transmission to men wearing short shorts and backwards baseball caps, which um, I'm probably missing something there. (laughs) I probably am. I'm not sure what she's getting at there. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, maybe you tell me. But uh, they also, or she also said here that the the, uh, ride is bumpy, quote, and shifting gears adds a layer of unpredictability to the passenger side, whereas a passenger you feel on edge, for the majority of the ride. Um, and uh, she goes on to say the experience, quote, is thrilling, uh, but also driving stick feels inherently masculine, uh, which may add to its appeal. Uh, I just think, and my rebuttal to this, uh, is that that if the drive is unpredictable and jarring and where you're feeling on edge for the majority of the ride, then whoever you're driving with may not actually be all that good at driving stick. Just just a consideration there. It should be smooth. It should be controlled. It should be predictable. Smooth car handling is important. Now, that said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue on here because we're going to get to our guest. Our guest, she is waiting to join the show here in just a minute. But, um, you know, the, look, it's a huge generalization. As a car enthusiast myself, and also as not a woman, I have a very clear bias uh, in this, in this uh, field here. I'm very biased, obviously, towards the manual transmission, which is clearly a superior option. I'm just, you know, just throwing that out there. Uh, but that said, I'm probably the least qualified here to talk on this subject of does a manual transmission help when uh, perhaps you're going on a date? I don't. You know what? I am the least qualified, so that is why I want to bring a special guest on the show. She has been waiting very patiently. Uh, Laurel McKenzie, a good friend of mine for many years. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? I I am doing good. Now, to clarify uh, that you are not a car enthusiast. I am not. That you are a woman, yes. I, last time I checked. Last time you checked. Okay. Uh, and that you have definitely not been influenced by any of the monetary bribes that have been sent on behalf of the show. Oh, no, no, not at all. No. Okay. Okay. Just just making sure we are good in that regard. Uh, also, I haven't really questioned you prior to this. Uh, I don't really have a complete understanding of your position on it. So I'm going to be hearing a lot of this for the, the first time myself as well. But the big question is, are men who drive ma- uh, manual transmissions more attractive well i think that i think the argument that can be made is that you have a skill that not many other people have you know that automatic transitions have pretty much taken over um mainstream the mainstream car scene i guess 
but um, I don't think it's going to be the number one thing that gets a girl to go home with you. Okay, okay, and, and, and is this presumably why I'm, I'm still single? Because I have been relying on this, this one tactic, just the manual transmission. Um, no, I think you're still single for a grab bag of reasons. <laughs> oh, ooh, ooh, shots fired. Okay, on that note, we'll move on to the, uh, the, the next question here. Uh, again, Laurel McKenzie is my guest, and uh, uh, okay, what do you think then when it comes to uh, cars that that says about people uh you know like if if you were dating and i know you're you're not right now obviously you are in a relationship and um and, but what does that say if you were day de- actively dating someone and you were gonna uh get in their car what do you think that car says about them well if you did have a manual transmission i guess that would say to me like this guy took the time to learn something that's not really commonly known and if you have an automatic it kind of screams daddy's money Oh, daddy's money. Okay. Okay. So, uh, then when, uh, looking, looking back at the article I've been, I've been talking about here, um, Logan, uh, Mahan says, uh, that driving, being in a car and being jostled around in a manual transmission car is, is more unpredictable and therefore more exhilarating. Do you think that is true? Because my take on that was being jostled around too badly in a car like that just is a sign of uh, poor driver skill on behalf of the driver. Well, I guess it depends on the person and the type of um, road you're running. Um, But I personally think that, you know, getting jostled around the car, going super fast, that's, that's super fun to me. I just, I'm the type of person that just likes roller coasters and going in fast cars, but I definitely know some people that would um, ruin your passenger seat. Now, um, now again, so when it, when it comes to someone's choice of, of vehicles, you know, and you do see that, that automatic transmission or you do see that manual, is that immediately going to be your first kind of point of reference? Or is that really like far down on the the bottom of the list? Because my perspective on this, at least my my initial opinion was that now this is honestly not that that relevant uh though i mean clearly we're talking manual transmissions are better but you know that's that's a aside from it is how how far is that when you're waiting you know if you're going on a date with someone for the first time where is that on your your priority list um i'd say that's pretty low actually fair enough yeah now would, would that and here's a hypothetical like a far out there would that extend to um People like you, you've got more and more modern cars, like even electric cars that don't have transmissions at all and are very easy to drive and drive themselves. Do you think in the future in a world, let's picture this in a world of like self-driving cars, do you think that uh, just being able to drive a car in the in the, the distant future would have that same effect? Um, I feel like being able to drive a car would have would would get you two points. I um I don't know how I feel about of Tesla determining where I go. <laughs> yep, yep. That is uh, that's the one thing we can agree upon here. So there you go. You heard it here first. Driving a manual transmission gets you roughly half a point, according to Laurel. So Laurel, I want to thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you.
And uh, again, see, that's uh, that is some of the perspective I wanted to bring to you, uh, a perspective different than mine, because, again, my perspective is very biased. You know what? And actually, I think that manual transmissions are very, very attractive uh, with, you know, what with all those synchros and gears, man, those those transmissions, the, the transmissions themselves are hot. <laughs> just saying, just saying. And now for how things work with an engineer. Transmissions. Shift. And that was how things work with an engineer. For more of how things work, go to patreon.com slash throttle warrior. are back for the third part of the show that car sound by the way courtesy of devon by the way that vr6 and that volkswagen um just sounds insane oh my god the pops on that those might as well be gunshots very very cool setup by the way of course you are listening to the automotive adhd podcast presented by throttle warrior here in the uh beautiful shadow of Pikes Peak, the weather, again, these past couple weeks has been fantastic. Beautiful call, fall colors, uh, you know, 60 degrees during the day, a little colder at night, but hey, what what can you do? I, I think uh, we're getting closer to that winter, enjoying the last bit of the really proper driving season. Now, that said, uh, if you are driving a lot, if you are enjoying the fall season of driving, you might have noticed that gas is getting more expensive like I, I don't care where you are in the country i could tell you uh here in colorado i've been paying about 420 nice uh a gallon on uh on a, a premium uh, 420 ish uh now uh, low grade or uh just regular is is still I mean, it's still expensive compared to where it was uh granted none of my cars can can run low grade. I, it's times like this where I kind of wish they could because stuff has been getting expensive. And you might have heard in the headlines, um, $8 a gallon in California, which is a partially true headline. That's not actually reflective on the whole state, but I'm going to get into that in, in uh, just a bit. Now, the highest reported average um, uh, as of August in California, uh, the last numbers from August a couple months ago, 431 a gallon. And I'm going to break down some stats here. We're not going to get too number heavy, but uh, the last highest peak, again, looking at California's numbers, because they're always a good metric of the highest gas prices in uh, the country. And uh, in 2008, June of 2008, gas peaked at 453 a gallon, which seems pretty close to that 431 a gallon they saw in August. Uh, but that's not quite true. And I'm going to kind of break this down because uh, adjusted for inflation, that 453 a gallon from 2008 is actually uh, 577 a gallon today. And not many places are that expensive yet. So, you know, we're still not there yet. Not to mention, though, the bigger problem is that 27% inflation over what, 13 years? Yeah, that's that's a whole nother issue outside of cars entirely. That's uh, that's something different. But, you know, it should be accounted for there when comparing these stats. Now, going on some more numbers, the national average right now for all of the United States, according to AAA, is 338 a gallon with the cheapest gas being in Oklahoma, 301 a gallon. Um, now, that said, that eight dollars a gallon gas station in California. And, and the media has been really running with that. Whoa, $8 a gallon in California. That was one gas station. Most gas stations out there are still asking, 
you know, like what, 430 or more, maybe even close to 450 uh, for regular, which, by the way, is insane. If you are going for the premium, you are going to be starting to pay more than five dollars uh, a gallon. And, and good to know all those numbers I just gave you. Those are for regular, um, not premium. But that said, uh, that eight dollars a gallon gas station for it was like seven fifty nine for uh, regular uh, that's a single gas station in the small town of Gorda, California. And that's going to be about 140 miles south of San Jose. Uh, and the owners of that gas station cited in their defense that the delivery costs and operational costs of keeping the gas station running there are why that's so high, which I'm inclined to believe them a little bit because the issue is they're also the only gas station for like 40 miles in any direction. Uh, they're in a really kind of rural area between um San Jose and going down to um, like L.A. Uh, so uh, they are I, I don't they say that I do kind of believe them. But also it's like if you're the only gas station in town, you end up charging whatever you want because people are going to have to pay for that lest they run out of gas halfway through or something, which I don't know. I think that's kind of dirty. But anyway, so wh why is this happening? Why is this happening with gas? Now, the AAA is uh, AAA is attributing this simply to just supply and demand, which I think is only partially correct. So last year, during the height of the COVID pandemic, um, we saw record lows. I mean, I remember here in Colorado seeing gas uh, for regular as low as like, oh gosh, it was probably like 210 a gallon, if not even uh, dipping beneath the $2 a gallon mark, which was fantastic, by the way. Uh, I tanked up on all sorts of gas and uh, it filled all my cars up, uh, well, at least the ones... <laughs> ones that ran, I filled up. But uh, that said, uh, you know, that and that was because and that that is partially a supply and demand thing. There was a lot less demand, a lot less travel and a huge supply of gas that had been refined and, and manufactured prior to that. Uh, now, this is where it goes deeper than that, though. It does go deeper than just supply and demand, because um, if it was right now, gas prices are skyrocketing. Uh, if that was just because fuel manufacturers weren't keeping up, that, that that's not true at all, because um, we would be seeing that more pronounced across the board. But what's happening is um, it's the actual logistics of moving that fuel from the manufacturer to the gas station. Um, it's, it's part of the actual supply chain. So yeah, partially in the supply and demand sort of segment. But the issue is, and we really saw this in what, June and July of this year, uh, you know, headlines in, you know, the South, you know, Alabama and other places like gas stations completely out of gas, no gas sold here, you know, hearkening back to the uh, fuel crisis of the 1970s. Um, and that was caused not by a shortage of the fuel itself, but by a shortage of Truck drivers, long haul drivers, you know, going across the country with these big, big fuel tankers distributing the fuel. That's been the issue. And that 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 can kind of be tied into our economy as a whole right now. I mean, there's a massive uh, portion of the public that is not working at all, uh, you know, for various reasons, which I won't get into those politically. Uh, but that said, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people not working. There's a lot of people finding work elsewhere. There's a lot of people quitting jobs because of vaccine mandates and things like that. So that, again, results in more people not working. And that includes truck drivers. Now, we're seeing this, too, in the airline industry, travel industry, delivery industry. But the, the truck drivers specifically are what's affecting um fuel costs and that affects us directly as the car enthusiasts who 
probably consume a little more fuel than the average the average person. I mean, we, you know, car people, you know, we tend to uh, recreationally drive instead of just driving for necessity, just going to work. You know, we might go on drives because that's what we like to do. Now, that said, um, we've also got a number of extenuating political reasons uh, for the higher gas prices on a national level, uh, things regarding to the, the current administration and things like that. There's a lot of things going on that are contributing to that, which I, I won't get into it entirely. But one part of that um, is going to be things that happen politically on the state level. This is one big thing that affects our fuel costs outside of just simply saying supply and demand and even just the logistical issues of, you know, uh, delivering that supply, um, you know, and this this is going to change state to state. And one thing I'm going to use as an example uh, is here in Colorado, we have our, our governor signed a thing called Senate Bill 21-206. Right. Really creative name. Very creative name. But but what that's doing is uh, that is going to be ramping up gas. There's going to be a fee on gas uh, between two to eight cents. It's going to start at two cents and it's going to ramp up over a little bit of time to eight cents a gallon, by the way. And uh, part of this that's a little questionable is that's a fee that is what they're calling it legally. But that sure as hell sounds a lot like a tax to me. But they, they said, no, 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 trust us. It's not a tax, because if it was a tax, it would have to be voted on, clearly. But anyway. But anyway, um, that said, that also includes a uh, a fee of uh, 27 cents uh, on individual deliveries. So Amazon, FedEx, Grubhub, everything. Whenever you order something, there is going to be 27 cents, 27 cents more expensive. Uh, and there's also a 30 cent fee on ride sharing. Again, you know, this is a, this is a fee, not a tax. Now, again, all right. This is a car show. I'm talking a bit, little bit of politics here, so bear with me. But trust me, this connects to cars, connects to exactly what we do. Now, this uh, bill here, Senate Bill 21-206, um, claims to implement these fees um, for the sake of improving, quote, transportation, which which sounds nice. But what they're doing with the money, and if you read the bill, uh, which I actually did go look at all the legalese in that bill, what they're doing is uh, they're improving mostly like the main streets in some bigger cities like Denver, the capital, um, to include, you know, more sustainable transportation options, which means bike lanes. So they're charging us more on gas to go build more bike lanes, which means we can drive less, which... All right, whatever. Um, that said, too, it's um, uh, there's another thing where it's going to a rail yard uh, in Denver as well. So, you know, and the, here's the problem. OK, and this is how this ties into everything. Even if you don't live in Colorado, uh, every state is doing something to this this effect. A lot of states are implementing different bills, different fees, different taxes. Uh, and by the way, if you are one of my listeners in uh, Colorado, no, just by the way, this doesn't start. This doesn't take effect until um uh it was it june of 2022 so we got a little less than a year until this actually takes effect so but you know again not a thing we were allowed to vote on because it was quote a fee and not a tax which i don't know that's uh not getting political here but i think that people should at least be able to vote on on things like that now what we've got going into this though is every state has some form of this california is no exception you know with having extra fees and taxes on gas and why this is important to the automotive enthusiast you and me is as drivers as consumers we really can't do a lot uh about the supply chain issues and logistical problems we can't do anything about that you know there's supply and demand but honestly there's our hands are tied we can't do much about that but what we can do 
is keep an eye out for BS bills and stuff that come up in, in whatever respective state we live in or, you know, hey, you might not even be listening in the United States, but wherever you live, I mean, keep an eye out for these policy changes um, that happen on the local and state government sides of things, because, you know, those directly contribute to your gas price and can contribute a good amount, 10, 15, even 20 cents, because you might have that gas tax um, by the state fee, quote unquote, sure. Um, uh, you might have that contributing to your gas price, but you might also have a city gas tax as well for a certain amount of money. Uh, and then you might also have a county one compounding on top of that. So that's how a two cent per gallon fee can very quickly become a 15 or 20 cent, which you notice that a lot more uh, with a bigger tank of gas, you're going to notice 20 cents a gallon difference. Um, now, granted, some taxes and fees exist for, you know, for legitimate reasons. Um, I'm not going to say this one necessarily does or doesn't but it's up to us as car enthusiasts to you know keep an eye out for stuff like this that actually can impact this cool hobby that we enjoy that that is you know cars and you know driving this is what we all love to do and uh you know being involved you don't have to be a politically involved person at all but you know just you know keeping an eye out seeing stuff petitions come up uh petitions come up to ax things like this to get rid of them uh if things come up voting i mean that's one of those things that if you have the opportunity to vote down something that might not benefit you and increases the tax in a way that also doesn't benefit you um and especially when it comes to cars, uh, I think that, you know, it's it's something that that should be done if you want to do that. Now, anyway, I mean, look at how the, the car community got together uh, with the RPM Act, uh, you know, with uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the government wanting to uh, limit uh, use of race cars on tracks. Like the, the idea with that was, you know, they wanted to ban having. Uh, a race car that was once a street car. So if you bought a car and then converted it to be a race car and were racing it on a track, that would then be illegal, according to the government. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, and even though you're not driving the car on a public road, so it's not something that can be officiated by the government in the first place, but they were trying to do that. Nonetheless, the car community got together on this. They started petitions up. They got in touch with uh, local politicians, state politicians, you know, all of the above to to put a stop to that. And, you know, sure, you know, little fuel things uh, relating to gas here and there are harder to do. You're not going to get the whole car scene, you know, backing you on a local gas tax. But at the very least, you can get with your buddies, you know, you're going out cruising and be like, hey, guys, so they want to do this gas tax. And I think we should sign this petition that says uh, not to do that and then go vote not to do that. So just uh, my two cents there. Now, that said, we could either we could do that or we could also just start distilling ethanol at home because uh, E85. That's the big win. Every day, thousands go without the ability to buy necessary and life-saving parts. Parts like turbos, coilovers, and wheels. I'm Steve, turbocharged BRZ. It doesn't run because I can play with my connecting rod through the hole in my block. Project cars sit unfinished, waiting for parts, collecting dust. My name is Todd, and I bought a rotary. It's okay, bro. We'll uh, swap it. But no more. You, yes you, can make a difference. For as little as $5 per month, you can put an end to Project Car's suffering and support your favorite podcast. Patreon.com slash ThrottleWarrior. Donate now and receive special perks. Sponsored by Autoholics Anonymous and the Speed Council. 
All right, and welcome back into the third half of the show. Joining me in studio right now is a good friend of mine and a longtime mechanic. His name is Brian Conrad. He has worked as a full-time mechanic uh, going on seven years now uh, for a Volvo dealership day in and day out. Now, he's also started his own business, um, tuning uh, aftermarket ECUs, standalone ECUs, building wiring harnesses, all of the above, some really great work. And of course, one of my cars is running on a standalone ECU because of Brian. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, no problem, Matt. Yeah, so what we're gonna do is, um, I, I've brought Brian on board because we're gonna talk about mechanic myths. What are things, you know, relating to cars, uh, you know, that are sometimes true, that sometimes people overhype, or just have flat out wrong? So are, are you ready? Are you prepared? I hope I don't make myself sound stupid here. <laughs> no, I already do a good job of doing that to myself. So, uh, but the first one I want to talk about, and I talked about this last week on my show, which is battery storage. And my position on the show last week was saying that it doesn't matter if you store a battery on concrete, because the old mechanic's tale, wives' tale, is that you can't you can't do that because it's going to discharge the battery. Yeah, funny enough, I actually had some friends just I think like a month ago while we were working on their car, uh, was talking about this. He's like, "Yeah, don't leave it on the ground though." I was like, "Why? Like, what's what's the what's the deal?" And he's like, oh, "You didn't, you know, if you leave it on the ground, it'll like it'll like drain the battery." I'm like. How? <laughs> How's so? Yeah, and I think I don't think a lot of people realize that you can't just leave a battery on a shelf or anywhere for that matter without it discharging over a long period of time. So I guess there's been a myth now that if you leave it on um, a hard surface, cold surface or something, that it will drain the battery. Which I mean, I guess it could be partially true because leaving batteries in the cold, as we know, like extreme colds, will reduce their their capacity. But it actually draining the battery faster, like right away. No, it's, I don't see. No, that's not a thing. So you're saying it's BS. It's not it's, true. It's BS. It's BS. Yeah. The, the concrete isn't going to suck the life out of your battery unless you leave it there for two years. But it's not really the concrete sucking the life out of the battery. No, it's you point. not charging or maintaining your batteries. See, and I think that's one problem people have that's like widespread. People leave the battery and they just leave it there and expect it to be good in like a year's time. Oh yeah, yeah. You oh charged I charged it up last year. Yeah, you last year. Last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lead acid battery, one of the one of the worst chemical batteries we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be as opposed to I don't know, would it would it be any different like talking about storage or cold storage, do you think, with like um lithium ion batteries being popular now with uh like motorcycle batteries, you're finding a lot of those are lithium ion now. Uh lithium ion batteries are a little different. Um, I believe the uh, requirements for those require them to be at a, like a certain discharge before storage, actually. Like with lead-acid batteries, the, the general consensus is it should always be charged. should never be like half di- left, like left discharge or anything like that because they'll sulfate. But uh, I'm pretty sure even in like some of our new hybrids, if they say that if you're going to leave the car in an extended period of time of storage, to actually make sure the battery is discharged all the way before storage. Hmm. Before, before storage. Really? Yeah, I thought that was weird. That That is. And I don't know, maybe that's how they lithium-ion batteries have to be stored to avoid damage or sulfating. Because you can still sulfate a battery, like a lithium-ion battery, right, over time. It can... It can like uh, build I don't... Up. Lithium, lithium batteries don't sulfate because I don't believe they contain sulfur, but um, they, I believe they can uh, be affected by... Uh, was it memory? Uh, like 
Oh man, I actually can't remember that one off the top of my head right now. Well, we'll come back to that one. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll come back to that one now. So moving on to the next thing here, um, what about when people say another mechanic myth that you have to turn off the AC on your car before you turn the car off because if you leave the AC on when you turn the car back on, it's going to make it harder to start. I've never heard that. Never heard that one. I've never heard that one. Do you think it's true? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why I brought you on the show. Debunk this stuff. Yeah, it's um, one of those things that, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say it and be like, you know, well, you can't, well, why did you turn your AC off? Oh, my car always starts slower when I leave it on. Typically, the AC clutch is commanded either by the climate control module or the ECU in the car. So it's only allowed to activate, you know, if it's acceptable time. I don't know if that would affect during starting, but I'm pretty sure... The computer would not command the uh, clutch to be on while a car is starting. That would make sense. Now, do you think that stems from like old cars maybe then? Do you think that's a, a myth that was perpetuated by like cars of the 50, or the 60s and 70s with big honking 70s AC modules and you stuff? Know, there, there are older cars that had AC systems that were so massive that they actually could stall the car out at idle like running into uh like a freezing evaporator almost but um i don't i don't know actually on that one. maybe i'm not old enough for that yeah so a newer car then to answer that question would be no, no doesn't matter doesn't not matter cuz and maybe that is something that was passed on from generations past uh, i know you at one time were telling me how um uh there was a 240 you were working on for a friend who oh yeah had we that were problem. driving it. you were driving it and it and actually did that thing where the uh, the uh, pump finally overcame the torque the engine was putting out we <laughs> stalled it light that's yeah, awesome turned the air conditioning off yeah and that was an old what nineteen eighty was it eighties or seventies Volvo eighty five Volvo two forty eighty five Volvo two forty so still not like a computer controlled clutch on there actually it's it's computer controlled engine but the clutch no the clutch is is totally analog using I think it was a pressure switch, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So then, so there you go. Again, uh, if you have a modern car, um, it doesn't matter if you leave the AC on or not. It does, does not matter. So now moving down the list here, we're going to go through these quick. Uh, how about this one? This is a really common one that even I think car people um, get wrong sometimes, which is uh, driving in the cold. Like if you cold start your car, should you just go or should you give it a second to warm up? Because the arguments I've heard for it um saying that you should let it warm up or uh, they stem from like old carbureted cars like oh you gotta let the carburetor warm up and you know let the oil warm up but the argument i've heard even for modern cars is that well your oil's not at a you know viscosity that's ideal for driving yet when it's cold new cars are fantastic at cold starts with those new oil standards we have like the 0w16 0w20 0w40 um those cars get oiling faster they don't have it, it doesn't like turn into like like uh, thick goo it or wax actually apparently if oil gets cold enough it starts to create wax deposits i didn't know that i was really I was learning that this morning but um with these new standards and like thinner oils um cold starts are really just not a big deal anymore i mean it, personally me i'll let my car if it, in the cold i'll probably let it warm for, for like a minute or two mm -hmm. just to get the engine going and then i'll just kind of casually drive yeah. But um, I think maybe on older engines, it's a bit more of a problem. Uh, probably not 
trying to uh, drive right away, but whether or not the car will start in the cold. Oh, that's true. <laughs> the yeah. starter having to work against all that friction. Well, and like you said too, with batteries having a reduced capacity in the cold earlier as well. Oh yeah, you're fighting a lot of things when the when the, when the temperature starts to drop a lot. I mean, batteries that were already on their way out start to show their age. Uh, the oil viscosity shows itself. Um, and, of course, the uh, mo- the uh, technology in the car, whether or not it's carbureted or EFI'd or a newer form of direct injection. Yeah, it'll definitely pre- present itself. Okay. Okay. So, again, here you go. You heard it here, maybe first, uh, that it doesn't matter so much, especially on newer cars, uh, if you just get in, turn the key, and just go in that case. Yeah. I guess it couldn't hurt just to, you know, sit there for a minute. Like a minute. But not like people, you know, in the past would, you know, spend five or ten minutes warming their car up before they drive. Like, well, you can't drive on it cold or you shouldn't shouldn't romp on it cold necessarily. Yeah, but. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a guilty of that. Yeah, you just you just start your car and just go and send it. Yeah. So this is uh, this is the, uh, you know, the thing of mechanic owned cars, you know, mechanic special cars. You find them on Craigslist. Mechanic owned. It's like I would not touch that. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on the mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No. But um, okay. So then the next thing here, less of a mechanical question, but more of a like mechanic service industry question, which is um, does it matter if you go to the dealership? or a private mechanic so much. Um, and you know, not not thinking of like really specialty it's, cars, but. It's a good, it's a, it's a hard argument because I think from, I'm a, I'm a bit biased in that sense because I mean, I work at the dealership. Right, and you have for almost 10 years. And basically. for me, it's usually, like usually if it's involving another shop, it's involving in a way where they either screwed something up or they don't have the, uh, what is it? The the they don't have the stuff right. essentially to get the car or the job done, and or there's something they just cannot figure out comes to the dealership. Uh, typically, I would I always would say that the dealership would be a better way to go, only because at least you know it's going to be it's going to have some sort of warranty, and you know it's going to be done as the factory intended. They have the most access to technical journals. Um, like factory like tools all that stuff whereas you know the mom pop shop may be really good at one set of cars because they'd handle them a lot but when you throw them into another brand or something they'll they're not quite sure what they're doing and i've had i've had that happen we've had um we've had a couple volvos for example Volvo's it's gotta be Volvo's, right? Well, yeah, because I work on the Volvo. That's what you work on, yeah. Um, a lot of our new ones, uh, they have cam covers. They don't have valve covers. They they actually have the upper caps to the main or to the cam bearings built into the cover itself, and that becomes a structural part of the engine. And some of them didn't know that. I guess we had a shop. Um, I don't want to call any names here, but they, uh, I guess they tried to reseal it and thinking it was a valve cover, and they actually pried that sucker off. With oh. the pry bar damaging oh, no. the surface, and it's it's a piece that's machined to match the head, you know. Right, it's like line honed. You can't you can't just swap another one on there. It's machined. So to they fit with gouge that. the surface that seals, and now it won't stop leaking oil. <laughs> wow. Plus, I mean, you're exposes the cams right away, and if you don't have anything holding them in, I mean, there's just a lot of things that can go wrong. Right, right, and it could warp that too. Right, it could warp the whole. Um uh, cam cover, basically. I think usually the, the the biggest issue with the cam covers is when they're not removed properly, because mm. there's like a half million freaking little ten millimeter bolts holding them in. Right. It's not like a just a set on the outer edge. It's I mean it's a lot of bolts. Yeah. <laughs> I hate doing them, but um, 
they actually sometimes will crack in pieces coming off because I mean they're just made of aluminum, right? Especially just cast aluminum. It's not very strong or anything like that. And I have actually like on a couple of my own little projects, I have managed to break those. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. So that's one argument, I guess, for going to um, the dealership is that they, you know, because a lot of people will say, you know, oh, I take my car to the dealership only. No one else touches it, only the dealer. Uh, whereas in the same regard, you have people who say, no, I don't trust the dealership to do a good job on anything or whatever. They want to go to a, a little specialty shop. And I mean, for older cars and classic cars, you do find specialty shops like Euro. And guys that makes sense. That. You know, yeah. you don't want to see me working on an old classic car. It might give you a heart <laughs> attack and see my belt buckle rub up against the paint. <laughs> <laughs> for clarification, that's uh, it's never happened before. No. Yeah, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. but um. Honestly, the only thing that I gripe about is just overall the, the cost that mm. is charged now for for labor and parts. Um, I feel honestly in the in automotive industry, uh, things are getting kind of expensive more really? than they should be. Really? But I guess everyone's kind of feeling their wallet lately. Well, and manufacturers making the cars, they're, they're more expensive too. So, I mean, you have that to contend with as well. But then servicing them and parts, finding parts with, with the chip shortage now on the show here. Um, a couple episodes ago, I talked about the chip shortage as well and how that's affecting manufacturers, not only in what they're having to make, but how they make them. Their actual manufacturing process and their supply chain is totally different. Now. Oh, yeah. I mean, my Speedino still hasn't shown up in the mail. Got <sighs> see? <laughs> see? See, that's going to be a thing on a later podcast. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about the Speedino which is the affordable standalone ECU. For the hobbyist. For the hobbyist. You say hobbyist, but it takes some technical know-how like yours to actually get it plugged to get plugged in and working and wired up. But uh, that's a whole nother topic that's going to be great. Maybe at a later date, we'll have you on the show to talk about that. Again, my guest is uh, Brian Conrad, a real mechanic, uh, not an enthusiast, ghetto, backwoods mechanic like me. I don't even call myself a mechanic. I just... I just break my stuff and have to fix it sometimes. So I, mean, I break my stuff and then I just buy another car because I don't want to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your defense, you work every eight hours a day on cars. And see, that's one thing I don't understand is how you can work eight hours a day and then come home with the motivation to work on your own projects after that because you've got like 13 cars. Oh, you don't. You just fix your friend's cars. And then they go, so where's your car? And they go, oh, it's, um, it's over there in the corner. <laughs> Not running. Not running. Engine's out of it. <laughs> Transmission's yeah. not doing so great. <laughs> yeah. All right. I got a couple more questions before for you before we wrap the rest of the show up. Um, and uh, skip shifting. Here's one for you. So like going in a manual transmission, first, third, fifth, instead of going first, second, third, fourth. I don't know anyone that does that. Actually, I, I've heard it's bad. Some people say not to do it. Like um, a lot of guys on forums will say, no, you're not supposed to skip shift. Whereas I think, I think the only thing you could do is wear the sinkers out faster because mm. the sinkers job is to get them to match speed and therefore they kind of act like a brake. Yeah, I guess you could. I guess if the input and the outputs were going at significantly different speeds, trying to go from like first to third, you might encounter an issue but that would you would have to be like redlining it in first and then going into third to do that i mean to be fair though how many broken manual gearboxes do you come across depends is it a w trans you it know what well. that's that's a that's a drifter problem that isn't is it? that is yeah. <laughs> they have a lot of problems they have a lot of problems i think the only t i think at the dealership as far as manual trans go i think the only one i've ever seen fail was um there was a Mazatec who brought one of the, these cars in. It was one of the newer Miatas. 
and we were he was it had a blown transmission manual okay. trans six okay. speed it's like how does that happen how does that happen well i guess i don't i don't know but apparently this customer was um taking it out of gear at a high speed and then trying to put pressure on the shifter to bring it into first as he comes to a stop and when you're doing that although he had the clutch in the pressure was actually pushing the sinker on the shaft and i guess it was actually spooling up the input shaft way faster than it was supposed to go i guess probably way faster than the engine actually revs mm-hmm. and it was actually um it was wiping out the, the bearings and stuff in the trans really and it was now, like his third one wow could not get the guy to understand to stop doing that behavior did they did they warranty it do you know on like by I the, think third, the one? third time they said no no to this to the warranty <laughs> wow because no one else has that problem right right with that car because i will say when you're driving a manual and you're like clutching in and if you're going into like third or you're coming to a stop and you're if you do force it into first on most transmissions you, you will still that it, feel you'll yeah. feel that resistance even though you've got the yeah. clutch in you'll feel it doesn't really want to go into first yeah and that resistance is probably the sinker saying hey buddy they're not matched yet right now <laughs> you could out. probably avoid that if you just rev matched into first but it wouldn't work obviously if the if you're going too fast for first gear in general. yeah i mean yeah. if you're if you're doing 60 and you're trying to put it in first even though you have the clutch in yeah you're gonna have problems mm. so don't do that yeah, don't do that. So don't do that. Okay, last question here. Last question comes to new cars, which you have a lot of experience with working at a dealership, uh, getting new cars from the factory and prepping them and taking them out to the lot. Do you have to break in a new car when you get it from the dealer? Like, do you have to drive it carefully? Some people say when you get your car, don't you know go over 60 for the first thousand miles. Well, I think with the, like, with the new oil requirements and stuff, I mean, personally, I don't see why it's a problem okay. because... I mean, they don't even give us instructions anymore for braking periods. Really? Mm-mm. Really? Just to take it and send it? I mean, maybe it's because I don't work on exotic cars, but I mean, our Volvos don't come with instructions saying, hey, for the first thousand miles, make sure you're very gentle with the with throttle and don't maintain the same RPM. This isn't, you know, 1980. <laughs> right. Right. I have heard with some more performance cars that, that they do come with like a sticker on the dash saying, you know, for first thousand miles, don't do that. But... In general, so you're saying that that's really not something that's relevant. No, I don't think it is. I, I I think my Alpha had something like that in the manual. Really? I can't remember. I think it had something about break-in period, but... Um, it's Italian, though. It is Italian. Yeah. That is bad. Do you, do you know, and uh, do you know if manufacturers do break-in at the factory uh, on engines or just drivetrains in general? Do they, do they put them... Because I know sometimes they'll pull a car off the lot or the line and do, and they'll test it, but is that a regular thing? That I don't know. I haven't hmm. actually had a chance to go around one of the factories yet. Not yet. Not that lucky. But um, if you look at like Volkswagen's uh, setup mm-hmm. uh, with their factory, uh, um, it looks, I mean, I've seen it kind of on display. I think we were talking about because we were watching that uh, Richard Hammond show. Oh, yeah. The, the Richard Hammond's big, fantastic uh, documentary series with Richard Hammond, by the way. Not doing too much of cars. Yeah. Great, great series. Yeah. Yeah. But um, they were delivering cars to customers out of the factory ready to drive off the lot Hmm. and i don't think they were telling them hey you know first thousand miles be a little careful with your vw there right anything nowadays it's they're they're probably built right ready to go right out of the factory that way okay so i mean things are so much more precise now yeah that's true that is true as well so there you go that is some mechanic myths i want to hear more of these by the way 
Um, if if anyone has thoughts on these, if you have thoughts on these, send them into the show, Matt at ThrottleWarrior.com. What are some mechanic myths that we missed? So I can bring Brian, oh, Brian I'm back. I'm sure we missed plenty. Plenty. I mean, oh, I'm sure there's the decades of them. I mean, decades and decades of them. So, uh, but that way I can bring Brian back onto the show, answer some of your questions as well. And of course, I want to thank Brian for uh, joining me on this show today. And that is a wrap for the show. If you want to catch up on all things Throttle Warrior, check out ThrottleWarrior.com. And of course, subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts and uh, this one are downloaded. Be sure to also subscribe to notifications on the podcast. You can do that on Apple. You can do that on Spotify, all of the above. And feel free to join me next week when I assemble a team to take on Ferrari. See you then.